This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To view faculty disclosures or to learn how to claim CME credit, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Great. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at uh, Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another of our educational podcasts with this specific podcast being part of our AUA Expert Exchange podcast series, Discussions in Genital Urinary Cancers. Today's specific show title is The Management of Advanced Kidney Cancer, A Guide to Targeted Agents and Immunotherapies. And it's really my pleasure uh, to host uh, a real thought leader in this field, Dr. Alex Kudakoff. Uh, Dr. Kodakoff is a professor in chief of uh, urologic oncology at the uh, Fox Chase Cancer Center, and was recently named. And kudos, Alex, I haven't had a chance to congratulate you, but was recently named the Roberta R. Scheller Chair in Urologic Oncology. So, Alex, happy holidays, and again, thanks so much for joining us here today. Jay, happy holidays to you and to everybody. Uh, it's a real privilege. Uh, really appreciate the invite. Uh, it's a great topic quite confusing, I think, especially for the trainees and for the practitioners who are not dealing with it every day. And hopefully we can uh, make simplify things and uh, clarify some of the confusions here. Perfect. So we have a few learning objectives today. The first is to discuss some of the current targeted immunotherapy options available for the treatment of renal cell carcinoma, describe some of the completed as well as the accruing clinical trials that are sort of defining the paradigms of the use of immunotherapy uh, for treating advanced kidney cancer, uh, best practices in patient selection for these different treatment options, as well as looking at different treatment plans and as well as talking about sequencing, combination of treatments, and, and uh, how that may play into care for individual patients. So, so Alex, you, you kind of hit it on the head right out of the gate, which is um, it's, it's, I think for urologists and trainees in general, it can sometimes get a little bit confusing, um, a little bit, um, it's like a totally new vocabulary. So maybe just 20,000 foot view is, take us through some of the, the, the high level sort of definitions and some of the terms we're gonna be talking about. So when we talk in detail about these trials, we're all on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there is sort of this uh, alphabet soup that's uh, associated with the space. Um, you know, IO, PDL1, PD1, CT, you know, CTLA4, all these things that are, you know, very confusing. Um, and uh, I think it's sort of important to clarify that um, right off the bat. So let's do that. I'm going to turn off this phone that's ringing here. And, uh, um, and so let's talk about, so one of these things is IO, IO, IO combination. What does that mean? That means immuno-oncology, okay? So that's an immuno-oncology drug. And basically you use IO because there is PD-1 inhibitors, programmed cell death 1 inhibitors. 
There's PDL1 inhibitors, which are programmed, uh, programmed cell death ligand 1 inhibitors. And there's also this agent called epilimumab, which is a mouthful. People just call it IPI. And that's a CTLA-4 inhibitor, which is a cytotoxic T lymphocyte-associated protein 4 inhibitor. So all those three kind of uh, drug, uh, drug classes are called IO or immune oncology, okay? Now, TKI, most people know what that is. It's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Sometimes um, that's, that's a drug like sunitinib or prazopinib or axitinib. Um, and sometimes that's also called a VEGF, you know, VEGF or VEGF, uh, uh TKI inhibitor. So, uh, or TKI. So, you know, VEGF inhibitor, TKI, uh, they're basically, uh, the same thing. And, uh, again, just, uh, when we talk about IO TKI combination, we're talking about usually a PDL or PD1 inhibitor with a TKI, and we're going to go through this in excruciating detail in a minute. And when you talk about an IO-IO inhibitor, you're usually talking, IO-IO uh, combination, you're usually talking about a PDL1 or PD1 inhibitor and that CTLA4 inhibitor like IPI, okay? So when you talk about IPI-NEVO, you're talking about the CTLA4 inhibitor and, um, and, a, and a PD1 inhibitor. So, you know, I think those are the main sort of sort of things. The other the other uh, the other sort of vocab word that comes in here is this IMDC risk classification on which a lot of the management pivots. And this is the International Metastatic RCC Data Consortium. And this is a risk stratification that basically has made it into the guidelines and uh, and on which the intensity of therapy is calibrated. And we'll go through that as, as as we sort of go through the therapy options. So uh, you've sort of given us a really nice framework, and that kind of leads us to, um, you know, the, the sort of natural history. And and you know, you and I sort of trained at the same time, and and we sort of came through this uh, this era where initially there was immunotherapy years ago, you know, IL two, and then the whole landscape shifted to some of these targeted therapies, as you mentioned, sort of the VEGF inhibitors. And then sort of the new kid on the block, although it's not really a new kid, it's actually, but is this whole immuno-oncology, right? But it's sort of revived now with a different, um, different array of drugs and therapies. So maybe walk us through, you know, wh what is the, the, the history of, of systemic therapy for kidney cancer? And, and you mentioned some of these different classes of drugs, but maybe walk us through that sort of timeline, maybe over the last 15 years. Yeah, so, you know, there was... There was first there was nothing, and then there was you know the the sort of the early immunotherapy era, which basically involved interferon alpha, and interferon alpha was not a great agent, but there was a small signal, and that's that was the only thing available. Now for the trainees, the the key thing to understand here is that renal cell is incredibly refractory to cytotoxic drugs. Basically, chemotherapy just does not work against kidney cancer. And that's the challenge. There was really nothing to offer these patients um, who, you know, had, when they came in metastatic representation, had about a 10-month um, life expectancy, less than a year. The prognosis was just abysmal. And, you know, in contrast now with the drugs I'm about to, about to mention, it was sort of this, this uh, complete renaissance of the space that's happened, you know, uh, overall survival is over four, over five years. So it's really incredible progress that we've made. 
Um, and there, you know, as, as we'll talk, there's some, you know, tales of those curves where some people actually appear to be cured, at least as far as we can tell right now, um, of this disease altogether. Now, there was also in that early immunotherapy era, there was also the drug IL-2, which also could cure, you know, five to 7% of patients. Um, and it's still, you know, some say has a role today. And, you know, it, there may be a resurgence uh, of IL-2 in this pegylated IL-2 form uh, in the future that we'll, we might see in the next few years. But IL-2 was uh, this another cytokine that elicited in a very small minority of patients a complete response and usually was given to uh, very young patients. But other than IL-2, uh, young and healthy patients, you, have to need, you need an ICU admission. I mean, this was a very, very toxic drug. I mean, you took people to the brink of death, basically, uh, in, in, order to, uh, in order to treat them. And many hospitals, including academic hospitals, never gave IL-2 and continue not to give IL-2 just because it's so challenging to administer. Um, then, you know, basically in around 2004, uh, 2005 came uh, serafinib. Uh, which was sort of the the first um, uh, multi-targeted, you know, uh, uh, um, tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And um, uh, unlike some of the other tyrosine kinase inhibitors that came uh, before it, this basically hit many targets. Many of these tyrosine kinase, uh, you know, enzymes that we learned in all these signal transduction pathways in medical school, this, this drug hit sort of a bunch of them. Uh, this drug was active, but not super active. And uh, on its heels came sunitinib, um, which we still use a lot today, and which is sort of the metric against we measure all new treatments because it is quite active. Um, <clears throat> in addition to these um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, you had the mTOR inhibitors, which are also in the, in the same pathway. And, you know, they, they, they showed promise, but clearly weren't as active as the TKIs um, and were used in until recently when it, it, it you know sort of their 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 star has definitely set they're 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 not employed as uh, as frequently as they were in the past they were actually as an aside used a lot for non-clear cell renal cell carcinoma and there are uh you know newer agents that uh, you know that are much more active um there was a bev interferon combination that was approved in 2009 and then came sort of the sexier um, uh, TKIs like axitinib and lenvotinib. Uh, so lev, uh, len, you know, uh, lenvotinib is actually, you know, again, a, a mouthful. Some people call it len. So len, everolimus, which is another newer um, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor, was an approved combination in 2016. Cabozantinib came in, 20, you know, in 2016. And then came the big combinations, the, the IO-TKI combinations. You know, this was... Um, uh, this was the um, the um, the, the Axi Pembro was 2019, but I should mention in 2018 before it was the Ipinivo. So this IOIO combo that we talked about came then, then Axi Pembro, and then you know it's just basically it's been another slew of combo therapies. The recent, the most recent of which, which you know arguably shows the most activity, uh, although some would argue it was tested in patients with much lower risk is uh, lenbotinib pembrolizumab, so lenpembro, which was approved in 2021, and we'll talk about that, that, you know, complete response rate and overall response rate is, was the, the, in this CLEAR trial was probably the highest that was seen uh, in all the trials, and although you can't compare from trial to trial, there's, you know, the, the, this combination is, is felt to be very active. 
So one of the points you, you mentioned earlier, um, you talked a little bit about the mTOR inhibitors and, and non-clear cell kidney cancer. So I think that sort of raises the, the bigger question of what is the impact and how do you think about histologic subtype when you are looking at this array of different therapies? And, and is there any sort of information that you can share on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, just to back up and, and, and sort of talk about you know, this, this, um, this uh, blanket diagnosis of kidney cancer, most of it, about 75% of it is clear cell renal cell carcinoma. But a significant minority, you know, 15, uh, 15, 18% is uh, papillary renal cell carcinoma. Chromophobe comes in at about, you know, seven to 10%. And the rest are these real zebras like medullary and collecting duct and translocation tumors um, that, uh, that are very aggressive and really behave quite differently from, uh, from the renal cells, but really clear cell is its own entity. And it, it's, it, you know, the, the activity of all these agents that we're talking about today against clear cell uh, carcinoma is quite, are quite unique and papillary and chromophobe, uh, kidney cancer really don't respond to these agents in the same way. Um, so it's important to make that, uh, as you say, make that distinction. A lot of what we're going to talk about is re- clear cell, renal cell is just much better studied and it's much more responsive to uh, currently available therapies. So um, you mentioned a little bit earlier when we were sort of starting at this introductory phase, that this whole concept of risk stratification and risk classification, and you specifically mentioned the IMDC. Um, maybe walk us through now, now that we're sort of, we've, we've sort of understand what therapies are out there. We've talked a little bit about some of these combinations. Um, how does this risk play into how we treat patients with clear cell, renal cell, or, or any of the, the subtypes? Yeah. So this IMDC is very important to understand. And, you know, honestly, you hear at urology meetings all the time, you know, people discussing Carmina and, you know, these trials and talking about intermediate and favorable risk and all these things. And it's important to understand the nuance here and you understand how these risk categories are compiled. So let's talk about there. They're basically six um, risk factors to this IMDC um, risk score, which are performance status, Time from initial diagnosis to initial systemic therapy. That one is very important. We're going to come back to that. Okay. Decreased hemoglobin level, uh, elevated corrected serum calcium, uh, uh, elevated neutrophils, and thrombocytosis. Those are the the risk categories. If you have zero from that score, you're favorable risk. Okay. If If you have one to two, you're intermediate. If you have three or more, you're high risk. Now, favorable risk is is really important to understand. This is, you know, favorable risk. You basically, you know, the definition is time from initial diagnosis. A favorable risk, you can't get a a single point, right? And so all your labs can be perfect and your um, your performance status can be perfect, but your timing of metastatic disease is important here. So favorable risk, really, to simplify it, are those patients, those 20 to 30% of our patients with localized disease who eventually progress to metastatic disease after a year of follow-up, okay? So those are the patients that came in localized, got resected, and then they metastasized. Now, by definition, 
Carmina trial, which is a cytoreductive nephrectomy trial, did not have those patients because all those patients came in as metastatic. So when people talk about, oh, the, the Carmina didn't have a lot of favorable risk patients, it couldn't by definition have favorable risk patients. It could only have intermediate and poor risk. So that's really important to understand. So in those patients who metastasize later, who come in who come in localized with a, you know, with a renal mass and metastasized on surveillance appear to be uh, very different biologically than patients who come in with concomitant metastasis. Um, so they, they, they can be offered as a first line therapy, um, this IO and TKI combo, uh, you know, the, the, that's the best, the best agent for them. The IOIO, the ipinevo combo, actually does not really does not have sort of there's so few events in that group as far as overall survival events. And we're going to talk about the overall survival is now the standard metric for evaluating these drugs, which is really a much higher bar than most other agents are clearing. I mean, we're not talking about progression-free survival. We're talking about an overall survival advantage. So an IOIO combo of ipinevo just you know it doesn't it hasn't cleared this bar yet um in 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 the uh in the seminal trial because just these age these these patients you know in this checkmate 214 trial um these agents uh, th these patients with these later metastases just be are good players they behave really well and many providers in many places really think that for those patients tki monotherapy is likely, you know, as as effective as an as a IO TKI combo. It's just these these um, the biology of these tumors um, and the kinetics of progression is such that they are just very sensitive to TKI monotherapy, and it's reasonable to just do TKI monotherapy with these patients. Although IO TKI combos are often used, um, they're just these 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 patients are very sensitive to to, to drugs that that target the VEGF pathway. And this is really uh, this, now. Right now, we're talking about the favorable risk group, right? The favorable risk group, exactly. So zero points on on the uh, on the uh, IMDC. Um, again, you all the labs have to be normal. You have to have perfect performance status, and your basically uh, your, your indications for therapy need to be more than one year after diagnosis, which largely says you metastasize more than a year after diagnosis. Um, so the Again, you know, I just want to make that point that, you know, since cytoreductive nephrectomy by definition is metastatic, metastatic disease of presentation, when we talk about cytoreductive nephrectomy, we're only talking about intermediate and poor risk patients. And if, again, if you're poor risk, you have three or more risk factors on the IMDC. Um, so, so if we pivot to that group, what, what do, so what are, what are our treatment options now if you get to these folks who are, as you defined just now, intermediate or poor risk? So the, this is sort of... Uh, maybe even the, the Carmina cohort, essentially. Um, right. What are what are the options there for that group? So, the the options for that group are, you know, we, let's 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 um, the the sort of cytoreductive nephrectomy. It's its own it's its own rabbit hole, and it's probably not not sort of the focus of this particular podcast. We, we, if we have time, we'll come back to that. But. Um, for the intermediate and poor risk group, it's largely dealer's choice, okay? And there, there are three trials that I should highlight here. And, you know, it's more than more than those three and probably, you know, the the the, the PIs of other trials and the drug makers are going to sort of fault me for not, 
for not covering those, but let me cover the three ones that I think for urology trainee or for, you know, for an urology APC, you need to know. There's Checkmate 214, which is the Ipinevo trial. Okay. And that demonstrated an 11% long remission or complete response rate. So in 11% of patients, all their disease went away. Okay. There's Axipembro, Exitinib, Pembrolizumab. That's the Keynote 426 trial, 10% complete response rate. Again, comparing between trials is dangerous, but, you know, very similar results. And the most recent one of these is Lenpembro, which is the CLEAR trial, 16% complete response rate. But this included patients with more uh, with with lower IMDC risk. Okay, there was there was more intermediate risk patients in that group, uh, but the overall response rate was seventy one percent compared to thirty six percent with sunitinib, which is really just remarkable. Um, and you know those the NCCN guidelines, you, you know uh, the European guidelines, the ESMO guidelines, basically tell you that for intermediate and high risk and, and uh, poor risk disease, it's dealer's choice between any one of these IO-TKI combos um, and, um, or an IO-IO combo, which is Ipinevo. For, fa- for favorable risk disease, uh, again, IO-IO combo is generally not recommended just because the signal is not, it is not there at least yet. Um, now, it's so it's it's important to so one thing you know which I should highlight that um, patients with sarcomatoid feature Jay you probably know that we you know when we used to do a cytoreductive nephrectomy sometimes we biopsy these patients to make sure they don't have sarcomatoid disease because these patients did so so poorly and we really wanted to identify them up front. Uh, and make sure they weren't rapid progressors and we didn't lock them out of systemic therapy. And they were just this group that was very challenging to manage and they just had this dismal prognosis. So this patients with sarcomatoid features as part of their renal cell, and you know, you can have sarcomatoid features as part of any of the subtypes of clear cell, um, chromophobe, uh, um, papillary, you can have sarcomatoid features with any of them. Um, Historically, these were very aggressive and these in these trials consistently demonstrate a response rate of over 50% and a complete response rate as high as 19% in these frontline trials that incorporate the, you know, the immune checkpoint, the checkpoint inhibitors. Um, yeah, I, sh- I should say, you know, in our alphabet soup discussion, we didn't say ICI. Sometimes the ICI uh, um, abbreviation is used and that's immune checkpoint inhibitor, ICI. So if you see that out there, that's all that, that what that means. Um, and, and so that's that's where we are now. Um, and you know what's you know what's what's uh, on the docket is are, are the triplets. They're you know uh, combinations, these triple combinations of uh, Cabo, Nevo, Ipi. You know, so you basically get uh, these TKIs, the uh, the PD PD one inhibitors and the uh, CTLA four inhibitors all together. And those trials are running. And there's a lot of enthusiasm about them. There, there may be, you know, maybe even a bigger response when you put three of them together. So you, you've talked a, a lot about, and I, I think, you know, you've highlighted very nicely that if one were to go look at you know, the NCCN guidelines, um, it really does divide exactly as you've done, right? Your favorable risk versus intermediate and poor risk, and, and certainly then even stratifies by subtype, clear cell versus otherwise. And so you, you sort of have this playbook theoretically for first-line therapy, 
which I think is helpful for urologists because, as you know, there, there's more trials that keep coming out. I mean, you almost can't keep up with the trials. And so it is helpful to have that reference. But what about um, second line therapy? I mean, what are the high level take homes that let's say you have a person who's a non responder or progresses on one of these agent combinations that you've talked about? What do we need to think about or recognize about second line therapies? Right. So, you know, uh, second line is, is, um, is there's no standard. There's just, again, sort of, thankfully, we're, um, you know, in an era of embarrassment of riches, we have lots of options. Um, there's really no standard, but some really favor um, cabozantinib, cabo, uh, due, due to its really uh, apparent, it's a, it's a TKI, but it's got it's got an advantage. It's been shown in a prospective, you know, randomized fashion to be superior to sunitinib. Uh, and uh, there, um, you know, there. This is uh, this is an option. Single agent nivolumab is also an option. There's emerging data on lenpembro, um, and these new agents that that we'll talk about. This HIF uh, HIF two alpha inhibitors. That are entering are also being investigated. So this uh, this drug called um, uh, belzutifan, which is sort of very hot and and it gets discussed a lot now in patients for VHL and is being tested in really all comers with clear cell carcinoma. But that's being test you know sort of uh, being looked at as a second line agent. So you know when you look at uh, NCCN guidelines, you basically see that Cabo, uh, Len, Len, uh, Lenvatinib, Everolimus or nivolumab are, you know, category one recommendations with axitinib is another category one and sort of a, just a slew of all the other combinations that you can give um, uh, as, as options here. So again, a little bit of dealer's choice. Um, I would like to say, I mean, it's really impressive that these combinations are tolerable and not toxic because if you think back, we had two drugs, right? We had for a long time, we had just the mTOR inhibitors and we had the TKIs. And that was, you know, Nobody talks about it, but really, that was a really, really toxic combination. It wasn't even tried. It was tried and stopped because people would not tolerate an mTOR and a TKI. But, you know, but these these combinations of these drugs are just uh, tolerated actually quite well. So, uh, Alex, we were talking, thus far, we've been talking a lot in the, in the last maybe five, six minutes now about first line and second line therapy. And most of our conversation is focused really on the clear cell subtype. Um, are there any notable differences with regards to when we look at non-clear cell histologies um, with regards to preferred regimens for systemic therapy? Yeah. So again, this this space really needs a lot of disruption and a lot of work. And you know, recently there was finally uh, you know a trial uh, you know led by Monty Powell that showed that you know cabozantinib is quite active against. Uh, against non-clear cell renal cell carcinoma, whereas before, really the mTOR inhibitors were were were, were sort of uh, looked at as the best option. Um, now, it, you know, cabozantinib is, is sort of the main go-to, but, uh, you know, if you look at the NCCN guidelines, the latest version, it's it really is, you know, clinical trial is first. If there's a trial, these patients should go on trial because there's really not a great, not a great option. And then, you know, followed by Cabo and Sunitinib, those, you know, with, again, a slew of other options that are available, um, you know, it's 
sort of useful in certain circumstances, as NCCN likes to put. Now, this is not quite non-clear, non so I should highlight that, uh, you know, and I mentioned that this VHL-associated RCC, um, this uh, HIF2-alpha inhibitor, uh, Belzutifan, which Merck is branding as uh, uh, Wellereg, uh, that is... Um, that has uh, been shown, and it was recently approved by the FDA, um, over response rate of about 50%. Um, all responses were partial responses here. Uh, but I should mention that for VHL-associated, you know, peanut tumors and uh, other sort of tumors associated with VHL, this drug was also incredibly active um, with some complete responses uh, in, in, in sort of different, in, in other organ systems. Uh, like for the new endocrine tumors. So uh, that's a very exciting drug being tested in, in sort of a, in non-VHL spaces and just came out. Good to know, probably going to be on the in-service for the residents <laughs> very soon. Yeah. So we talked briefly about uh, two key uh, uh, sort of maybe trial spaces and, and I think important things for people to know. So you talked about Carmina. Let's talk about that for a few minutes um, uh, you know, what was a Carmina trial and what, what are your take homes from that, that study? Yeah. So, you know, I think all of us sort of went into urology to become surgeons and, uh, you know, these were, this was sort of, uh, an upper, you know, uh, kind of a heel with steel opportunity. You know, you had metastatic disease. We really didn't do any cytoreductive surgery just for any other organ system, but for kidney, um, there uh, was a signal. There were two trials, um, uh, you know, done, uh, you know, more than a decade ago that showed that there was approximately a five and a half month survival advantage with interferon alpha uh, to uh, taking uh, out the primary. And that sort of uh, was the uh, standard of care and was, um, was how we manage patients and, and, and people came in with, you know, widely metastatic disease. And we try to sort of make sure that their performance status was appropriate and, and, and that the, they didn't have sarcomatoid disease. And then we took them for a nephrectomy. And what we, what we saw is that um, in the trials, the, you know, over, you know, almost all patients eventually went on to systemic therapy. Uh, and got interferon alpha. But in clinical practice, that really didn't happen. There was a significant percentage of patients that, and, you know, and so the percentages depended on the institution, you know, as you can imagine on how aggressive the surgeons were. And, and, but there was a significant percentage of patients that didn't get, never made it to systemic therapy because of complications, uh, because of rapid disease progression, and they sort of passed from renal cell without ever seeing a systemic agent. And the question was asked, listen, we, you know, this is a new era. We have agents like sunitinib, which is quite active. And are we locking our patients out of this drug by putting, um, uh, by basically uh, uh, doing surgery first? And so the Carmina trial by, you know, was run by, uh, by our French colleagues and they enrolled uh, patients and randomize them to either get sunitinib or get cytoreductive nephrectomy in sunitinib. And, you know, there was really no benefit and arguably some harm to getting a nephrectomy uh, because sunitinib alone was, you know, just as good, if not better, than, um, than cytoreductive nephrectomy 
and uh, and sunitinib. And there were, you know, sort of many arguments made. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I did an AUA debate, in which, you know, in debates, you always come out stronger than you probably feel it about certain points. But, uh, you know, I mean, there were very, you know, there were a lot of poor risk patients, you know, high volume metastasis patients in Carmina. And, you know, the, the selection for Carmina, uh, you know, probably was enriched by patients who were poor surgical candidates. And there's all these criticisms of the trial. But in reality, Carmina really showed us that, hey, we should not do a cytoreductive nephrectomy uh, when we're going to potentially lock our patients out of systemic therapy. Now, in my opinion, and this is opinion, uh, there are still uh, there's still a role for cytoreductive nephrectomy, especially with patients with oligometastatic disease, where uh, you can envision yourself removing the kidney and you know having a couple of lung mets and you're actually not going to start systemic therapy and you're just going to watch them and there's data for that there's phase two trials showing that active surveillance in an oligometastatic setting actually has a role and in those select patients with very you know uh, low metastatic burden there is a and, and good performance status there's still a conversation to be had in my opinion uh, for cytoreductive nephrectomy but if there's any question whatsoever patients should get systemic therapy first. And, you know, the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy after systemic therapy is yet to be determined, but those trials are being done. There's just a slew of trials on sequencing of cytoreductive nephrectomy with different agents. If all that stuff is ongoing, that space is really going to open up. But I think the main message right now is if you're seeing a patient with metastatic disease and they need systemic therapy, do not operate on them because you may lock them out of, of the agents that, that will most likely extend their life. So second you know, scenario to ask you about for a few minutes is um, adjuvant therapies for non-metastatic high-risk uh, kidney cancer. And, and I know that there's a lot of trials in that space, but maybe, maybe highlight maybe one or two that are, you know, there's a recent pembrolizumab trial. Obviously, there's the S-TRAC trial. Maybe just give us a flavor of that. Yeah. So this is the idea here is, okay, you, op, you, you know, about 30%, up to 30% of patients with high risk localized uh, kidney cancer are going to develop metastasis. We have all these active agents, right? We have all these agents that are active in the setting of metastatic disease. Can we give them to our localized patients at high risk and change their destiny? Basically um, prevent them from developing metastatic disease. And Jay, as you know, there's a graveyard full of effort, you know, of over a decade of running these adjuvant trials. You know, adjuvant therapy uh, is when you give a systemic therapy agent in the absence of detectable disease. So somebody gets a nephrectomy or gets a partial nephrectomy, it's high-risk tumor, T3, high-grade, et cetera. You know, can you offer them something to reduce their chances of progressing to metastasis? And the biggest trial was a SURE, which basically randomized uh, patients uh, to uh, observation versus serafinib versus sunitinib. And that trial was stone cold negative. Um, you know, um, Rob Uzo, who is a Fox Chase, who is now CEO of Fox Chase, uh, and one of my big mentors, uh, is, uh, you know, was the urology PI on that trial and poured his heart and soul into running this. And this was a giant trial that had absolutely no signal. And then there was a slew of other trials that were run, you know, just to name a few, uh, you know, um, Everest, Protect. I mean, there was, you know, Pazopinib, Everolimus. There was all these trials that, again, came up completely empty handed. Um, and 
there, you know, I can go on and on. There's, there's a whole sort of a, you know, several slides worth of a PowerPoint presentation of all the slide, all the, uh, all the trials that were run. And then came the S-Track trial where, you know, where Farmer went back and said, well, what if we really picked the highest risk patients? And it was a much smaller trial than Assure, but it tested sunitinib in the adjuvant setting, and it showed a signal. It showed, you know, uh, basically a modest signal for a disease-free survival advantage after you took sunitinib for a year. Um, the overall survival advantage, overall survival data has not, you know, was sort of initial data were reported, but basically hasn't matured because there's not, not, you know, not enough events, not enough follow-up. So that's still pending, but nobody is really expecting an overall survival advantage to sunitinib. And why? Because maybe it doesn't change destiny, or maybe because these patients get the current standards of care and get all these other agents that actually they don't show an overall survival advantage. But the way to sort of understand sunitinib is you took a drug for a year, a drug that's very hard to take, actually, and was very hard to give sunitinib in the adjuvant setting. You took it for a year, only in, and the result was that your scans were, were clean for an extra year. You know, sort of that, that's the way to simplify it. And it, for some patients, that's worth it. For some patients, that's not worth it. But sunitinib is approved by the FDA uh, for, uh, for in the adjuvant setting. And most recently, the Keynote 564 that was um, spearheaded by Tony Schiari, uh from, from the Dana-Farber, you know, showed a, a, a signal. This was an adjuvant trial of pembrolizumab, of the uh, of the immunotherapy agent. Again, showing a disease-free survival advantage uh, to pembrolizumab and with the overall survival data, potentially curve separating, but very too early to tell, too early to tell. But there's hope that those overall survival curves will actually uh, separate and stay, and stay separate. Now, you know, there's, there's still discussion to be had, whether every patient needs it. You know, we just wrote an editorial to, for European and, you know, some of the arguments, again, this is, you know, to, to give uh, Tony and his team credit, this is a complete disruption in the field. I mean, this is, you know, this is the first data that really shows a very significant signal for, um, for disease-free survival advantage. Uh, it's an immunotherapy agent. Um, and, and, and it really was also approved by the FDA, probably is going to be used a lot more than sunitinib was. But you can make the same arguments you were making before is, okay, there's, there's you know, the majority of patients are actually never going to progress. So you're over-treating those. The patients who are destined to progress, instead of giving them a combination therapy that we know works the best, TKI, you know, TKI um, uh, IO combo, you're only giving them uh, a pembrolizumab, you know, uh, single agent. Are you over-treating one group and under-treating another? Um, and that's, you know, the costs are just astronomical for this stuff. And, if, and without an overall survival advantage, you know, critics say it's, this is just not enough to offer to everybody. Now, you know, I say that I offer it to patients all the time, young patient with really sort of aggressive tumor, you know, they're, they're going home to, you know, young kids. Hey, you want, you know, this is something to really offer, but for, you know, our frail elderly, um, you know, and some would disagree with, 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 with sort of differentiating between, between these type of patients, but I, it, it's a little bit of an emotional decision. I think we make in clinics sometimes, you, you know, for, for most patients, I think, you know, I'm, I'm still going to wait, wait and watch, uh, wait and see what happens on the scans before offering adjuvant therapy until we get the overall survival data. Sure. 
Sure. Well, Alex, I, I really want to uh, thank you overall. It's always, it's, I love having these conversations with you because you're very thoughtful and uh, you think about this uh, like a surgeon, which is, you know, it's, it's always good to sort of sometimes distill down some of these things to um, the way you would look at it as a, as a urologic surgeon. Um, but really, thank you so much uh, again for your time uh, this, this uh, evening. And uh, I want to thank our audience as well. And, and for any other information, please visit auanet.org slash university. And Alex, again, thank you and, and happy holidays. Thanks so much for having me. Happy holidays.